The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Idolatry. Until it's quite wrong. 
God never said that you couldn't worship any image. He only said, you can only worship the image I am going to give you. <laughs> Jesus says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Mary falls down and breaks open her, her uh, bottle of nard and pours out the ointment on the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't forbid her, he accepts it. She says, uh, let her do this against the day of my burial. See, don't worship any idols. Why did God say that? Because he was saving worship for Jesus Christ. Don't take the name of, the, of uh, God in vain. How do you hallow the name of God? How do you exalt? How do you lift up the name of God? Well, you lift up the name of God when you use the name Father. And who teaches you to say Father? Jesus does, the Son. For only the Son can reveal the Father, and only the Father can reveal the Son. So how are you going to lift up the name of God? The true name of God, the ultimate name of God is Father. Only through Jesus Christ. Only as you know the Son. And that the name of Jesus, the name of God is lifted up. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God is Father. So you go through the Ten Commandments, and they all have reference in one way or other, ultimately, to the fullness of revelation that God's going to give us in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, you might say, here's one that surely doesn't. <clears throat> the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? Well, uh, think about that a little bit. Why did God give that commandment to Israel? Well, you say he wanted to assure a stable family life, to uh, give a firm social structure in Israel. Well, no doubt that's true. It's true. Certainly needed in our society. But is that all God was doing? Well, think a little bit when you think uh, adultery. God's always condemning it all through the prophets. But what does he condemn? Not only the physical adultery of infidelity to a marriage partner, but spiritual adultery. He always keeps condemning that. He keeps saying Israel is guilty of spiritual adultery. And you have the whole prophecy of Hosea centered on that thing. Now listen, how does it work? Does God uh, sort of look down at this world and say, uh, i got to get through to these people somehow. Uh, what will I do? How will I get through? How will I get them to understand? They've got to have a special love with me that isn't to be shared with other gods. How am I going to communicate that to them? And then he thinks, that, ah, I've got it. And they, they really have a little glimmering of understanding of what the meaning of a jealous love can be uh, in the marital relationship. So that's what I'll use as my illustration. I'll tell them that just as adultery is reprehensible in the married relationship, so adultery is reprehensible in the spiritual level, and that as uh, the Lord their God, uh, I am angry when they are guilty of spiritual adultery. Is that the way it works? <laughs> well, you realize, of course not. Of course not. Uh, God doesn't uh, sort of uh, look around and scratch his head a bit and say, uh, where, where can I come up with a, a connection? Person. God appointed the connection in the first place, right? It's God who formed Eve from the body of Adam. It's God who united the, a man and woman in marriage and said they were to be one flesh. It's God who taught us the meaning of a jealous love. It's God who taught us that there could be a jealousy that's holy. I'm not, of course, talking about the caricature of jealousy that may arise in a suspicious husband or wife. I'm talking about the zeal of a zealous love that is faithful within the marriage bond. The, the love that recognizes that the two have become one flesh in, in, in God's opinion. So why does God say, thou shalt not commit adultery? Well, of course, one reason is to 
teach us the meaning of a jealous love, a proper jealous love, in order that we might understand that he is a jealous God. And of course, uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, there's one word that means either jealous or zealous. So God's a God who's filled with the zeal of love for us, and he wants us to be filled with zeal of love for him. So when Paul writes, as he does in Ephesians, about the relationship of a husband to a wife, uh, you'll notice he keeps sliding off the subject. Uh, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church, for because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, do you also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear or reverence her husband? Now, friends, when you read that passage, um, it's amazing, you see. Paul starts out talking about one thing, and then he always ends up talking about the other. And he has to keep getting back on the subject. And you you see the structure of the rhetoric there. It's it's transition after transition, because he keeps sliding off. And he says, this mystery is great. And then uh, he thinks, uh, oh, they're, they're going to misunderstand. What I'm talking about, this mystery, is, of course, the fundamental one, Christ and the church. He's not saying there's no mystery in a relation of married love. Sure there is. But he's saying uh, that's the minor one, the major one, is the mystery of Christ and the church. Do you see, friends, uh, this is not a chance analogy. The connection here is not arbitrary. It's fundamental. Uh, God has appointed the relationship of man and wife with a view to showing us the meaning of a jealous love in order that we might understand what it means that God has that kind of zealous love for us and that we, therefore, are to reciprocate in kind. We are to love him that way. And of course, that mystery that Paul talks about, that great mystery of which marriage is only a kind of foreshadowing, a preparation in the natural world of that which is the reality in the supernatural world. That mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. There's the heart of the mystery. He's the one that it's all about. it's great to give people in preaching practical suggestions that's fine it's good I mean it doesn't hurt when you're preaching uh, to remind husbands that even little things can be needlessly offensive to their wives you know Uh, after you knock out your toothbrush put your hand under the spigot and sprinkle it around so you don't leave the detritus from your knocked out toothbrush on your bowl a lot of women don't like that when they see that there it looks icky clean it out and fine, great, okay now you've given uh, some concrete help to a marriage okay but if that's all you do when you're preaching You're not helping marriages very much. But if you begin to show people something of the mystery, if you begin to get them to understand what it means that God loves, loves us with a zealous love in Jesus Christ, with an exclusive love by which he draws us to himself, 
and that he wants us to love Jesus that way. That the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. You see, if that grips the heart of a man, if that grips the heart of a woman, then it becomes possible to look at marriage in a very different way. Then it becomes possible to see that a man and his wife can dwell together as a pale but nevertheless true image of the relation of Christ and the church. Thou shalt not commit the dog. Points is at last to Ephesians 5. Points is at last to Jesus Christ. You see what I'm getting at? You see, what I'm saying is uh, the covenant, the heart of the covenant is not in the externals separated from the center. The heart of the covenant is seeing how the whole law of God flows from the center flows from that union between God and his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That union that is uh, actualized in Jesus Christ, uh, our Savior and our Lord. Covenant law is not legalism. The next uh, point that I want to make in, in the outline is that uh, not only is the is redemptive history initiated by the Lord, which is what we've been talking about, but that it's directed by the Lord, <clears throat> directed in the way of covenantal testing. That is to say, God leads his people through the desert. God did not bring Israel uh, from Egypt to Canaan by the shortest possible route. He wasn't interested in rapid transportation. He was interested in education. And so he tells the people that he led them by this way in order that he might prove them, as Deuteronomy 8, to see what was in their heart, to see whether they would be obedient to him or not. And there, in, in that connection, he says, that they might learn that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, your hardest boss, in his great book on biblical theology, has pointed out that living by the word of God in that context means not merely that they would learn to live according to the word that God speaks from Sinai, but also that they would learn to live by the word of God that directed their wilderness wanderings. For remember, we're told that in Exodus 17, for example, that it's at the word of God that the people strike the camp. And at the word of God that they uh, pitch their tents and drive into their states. You see, they, they march at God's direction. God directs them through the desert. So they go by the way that God leads them. And they learn that they must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, including the word that directs their march. And you see, the reason they have to learn that is because on the surface it may seem that God leads them to the wrong places. He leads them through the desert, and there's no water, and then way off in the distance, they see a, a, a spring, they see that there's water and there are green trees, and they come running to the place, and there's, sure enough, there's water, and they all fall down and start to lap up the water, and it's uh, sulfurous and undrinkable. Uh, they, they, uh, what has happened? What has God done to them? Has he deceived them? Has he played a nasty trick on them? And uh, they know they have to learn that man does not live by bread alone. He doesn't live by water alone. He lives by the word of God. And then God speaks his word to Moses. Moses casts a tree into the bitter water, and the water is healed. And then God speaks his word again. He says, I am the Lord who heals you. 
He says, you keep my covenant and I will not put upon you the diseases that I put upon the Egyptians. Now, they learn, in short, uh, to live by the word that God speaks, the word that directs them in the way, the word that gives them manna in the wilderness, uh, the word that gives them water from the rock. So the way that God leads us is the way of covenantal testing. <clears throat> Incidentally, uh, friends, uh, this is very important for the whole area of Christian education. You know, sometimes we begin to set up a, a curriculum for education as though uh, we were providing the sum total of all the life experiences of the person that we're seeking to educate. We talk about a comprehensive curriculum as though uh, we were teaching them all that they were going to learn. Uh, But uh, obviously that's far from the truth. Uh, The real life curriculum is the one that God himself provides. Uh, God has his hand on each one of us. God is leading us through the experiences of our lives. And uh, the more we seek to be effective in teaching others, uh, the more we have to discover uh, what's going on in their lives. The more we need to uh, comprehend uh, where they are in the pilgrimage on which God is leading them. And uh, you see, the more we can address the word of God as we receive it in Scripture, the more we can address that to their station where they are in the wilderness, uh, the better. And we need to reflect on that. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So God leads them in the way of covenantal testing, and he leads them also in the pattern of covenantal judgment. That is to say, as God leads the people along, he warns them that if they are unfaithful, uh, he will punish them. Uh, There will be the rod of his discipline visited upon them. And if they are faithful, uh, then they will receive the blessings of God's covenant. Now you will recall at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you have a provision made that when the people entered into the land, half the tribes of Israel were to go up into, <coughs> excuse me, half the tribes were to go up into Mount Gerizim, and they were to repeat all the blessings that would come on the people if they were faithful to God's covenant. The other half were to go up on Mount Ebal, and they were to repeat all the curses that would come upon them if they were disobedient. And uh, in Deuteronomy, you have both those blessings and those curses uh, recorded. Now, uh, God says, this is what will happen. Then, amazingly, in Deuteronomy 30, after you have the blessings and the curses, uh, you have uh, the the goal of it all uh, described. That uh, after uh, the blessings will be given and they will all be given, and after the curses are poured out, and they will be poured out, then in the latter days, after the blessing and after the curses, there will come the great restoration of God. They will be scattered in cursing, God's judgment on them, but then, we're told, from the utmost parts of heaven, from there will the Lord thy God gather thee, from there will he fetch thee, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. He will do thee good. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Now, friends, in that simple outline, you have the whole structure of the Old Testament, the whole structure of how God deals with his people. First come the blessings, then come the curses, then come uh, after the blessing and after the curse, then there comes the great blessing of the latter days when God will circumcise their hearts. Now the period of blessing is signaled when Solomon's temple is dedicated. And in uh, 1 Kings 8, as Solomon dedicates the temple, he raises his hands and he blesses the people. 
And he says, Lord, you have fulfilled all your promises. All the things that you promised to Moses, they've all come upon us. See, they, uh, under David, uh, the enemies had been driven out of the land. The Philistines had been subjugated. They'd overcome the Moabites and the Edomites. And they possessed the land that God had promised to give them. And, and Moses says, Lord, you've kept all your promises. But after that great pinnacle of blessing, Israel plunges again into the deep veil of disobedience and the rebellion. And Solomon himself worships other gods and the kingdoms divided and Israel in the north goes into idolatry and they're swept away into captivity <coughs> by the Assyrians. Then Judah in the south is similarly disobedient and where the cloud of glory had rested over the temple of Solomon, there's now the smoke of burning as the temple is destroyed. The glory of God, Ezekiel sees, departing from the temple and moving toward the east in order that God might be with his people in exile. And that gives you the background of the message of the prophets that after the blessing and after the curse, then there will come the great time of restoration. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But you see, God is leading his people to the goal that he has for them. In the end, he wills to do them good, and uh, he promises blessing. Now, the goal of God's goodness is grounded in the initiative and the start of God's love. You see, God says that he loves them because he loves them. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. If you look at that passage, you see God says, uh, I did not set my love upon you because you were more in number than any nation, for you were the fewest of all nations. God says, I didn't love you because there were so many of you. But then, why did I love you? And that amazing verse says, I set my love upon you, not because you were so many, but because I loved you. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? God says, I loved you because I loved you. Uh, you know, the, the fellow uh, says to the girl, uh, oh, darling, I do love you. And she says, oh, why do you love me? And he says, dear, from all the women I've ever met, you are the most suitable for my purpose. Not so good. No, not so good. <laughs> That's a rational statement. <laughs> uh, now, one of you fellows ever had that in your line, I bet. All right. Uh, but now, look. Uh, she says, why do you love me? And he says, oh, dear, I love you because I love you. And she says, oh. <laughs> Well, it's a sheer pathology. I mean, uh, no new information has been communicated. Uh, I love you because I love you doesn't tell her anything, right? <clears throat> Why should she be so impressed? Well, don't you see, even in human relationships, uh, we put love in a special place, don't we? <laughs> and uh, think about the relationship of the love of God. And God says, he doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He loves us because he loves us. In other words, nothing but the mystery of his own compassion can account for the love that he bears to us. God loves his people. He calls them. He wills good for them. And the whole history of redemption is like a, a rainbow of the promise of God stretching over the history of his dealings with his people. The seasons, the periods, the epochs of the history of redemption are leading forward to the great climax of the blessing of God that he will pour out upon his people, the blessing which is the evidence of his love. And so, I've said we have to recognize that covenantal history has got to be set over against moralism. See, I said a bit ago, it's against legalism 
and it's also against moralism. That is to say, uh, we realize that God is God's work is the work of salvation, <clears throat> grounded in the love of God and expressing the grace of God. And that the wonder of it is always the mystery of God's great salvation. As Paul says, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. And there he's not thinking so much of God's work as uh, as creator, he's thinking of God's work as savior. You know, he says that at the end of Romans 11, and there he's been dealing with a difficult question. How could it be that so many of God's own chosen people, Israel, are rejecting him while the Gentiles are receiving the gospel? And the Apostle Paul, who would be willing to be accursed from Christ for the sake of his brethren according to the flesh, the Apostle Paul sees those brothers rejecting Christ, and then he sees the Gentiles accepting him. And he cries out in in agony to the Lord, you know, how can it be? And then he he gets the Lord's answer. He understands they are not all Israel that are of Israel. The calling has always been according to grace and uh, not according to works. And so uh, we must be reminded that we preach the history of salvation, the history of how God extends his great arm to redeem us. So the Lord God himself uh, leads us forward uh, to the goal, and the goal is that we should uh, uh, be with him. Now, uh, let me move on to the fulfillment that uh, the promises that God has made are promises that are brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, That uh, history of redemption that I was telling you about, that that included uh, first the judgment and then the blessing, uh, or rather first the blessing and then the judgment, but then finally the blessing in the latter days, uh, that is fulfilled when God himself comes uh, to be our Redeemer. Uh, fulfilled by the Lord. And you see, it is uh, the Lord who will come to save us. And we are told that God must come to be our Savior. You see, God must come because our situation is so desperate that only God can remedy it. Uh, I've uh, indicated there Ezekiel chapter 37 And you remember the vision that Ezekiel had there. Uh, He saw the whole assembly of Israel gathered in the valley. Uh, But what did he see? A valley full of dry bones. Uh, Some of you who are preachers uh, have sometimes uh, felt a little bit that way as you looked out on your congregations, you know. (laughs) But uh, uh, they were even in worse shape than your congregation. (laughs) Because uh, to begin with, they were all dead, and uh, then uh, they were all disassembled. You know, in Lima, Peru, they've kept all the bones of all the saints and martyrs that they have down there, and uh, they have classified them. Uh, Somebody has a passion for organization, and uh, long before the time of computers, they classified all the bones they had, and they had lots of bones. They classified them by uh, fingers and by tibias uh, and by uh, all the other bones, uh, uh, which gave them a remarkable kind of organization. No skeletons, but just uh, piles of tibias or tibias. <laughs> I don't know who thought of that form of uh, organization, uh, but uh, at least it was organization. Whereas uh, Ezekiel's bones weren't organized any way at all. They weren't together as skeletons, and they weren't even compiled as tibias. They were just scattered over the floor of the valley. And then the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, who's been around the Lord for a while, doesn't say the obvious. (laughs) He says, Lord, you know. And remember, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy, prophesy. And all of a sudden, they come together, bones with bones. Amazing. And he prophesies, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they become uh, 
a living host. You see, God is going to have to do it. That's the word of the prophet. And Israel in exile is hopelessly lost. As a nation, they're as good as dead and decayed. If they're going to be brought back from exile, only God can do it. You see that the, uh, the imagery even goes beyond that. You see, they're not only dead in exile, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul tells us. And if there's to be life given to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, then it has to be the power and the Spirit of God that will accomplish. Only God can remedy the human condition. And then, the only other side of it is that God must come not only because our situation is so hopeless, but God must come because his promises are so great. And that's the meaning of that other little drawing I have there. Uh, this little business up here is uh, supposed to be the golden plate that was put in the turban of the high priest. You know what it said on it? Holiness to the Lord. And so the high priest who alone had the right to go into the Holy of Holies had the golden plate on his forehead, speaking of his uh, separation <coughs> to the Lord, holiness to the Lord. But the prophet Zechariah, who describes the blessing in the latter days, you know what he tells us? Is there going to be blessing in those days? Well, you know, Zechariah was ministering to people after the return from exile, right? And uh, some of them were unimpressed <coughs> by the results of the return. Because the latter glory wasn't like the former glory. The little temple that was built by the returning exiles didn't even remotely resemble Solomon's glorious temple. And some of the old folks that had seen the old temple wept when they saw the new one because it was so unimpressive. And uh, where was the great glory that God had promised? And they understood the scheme, first the blessing, then the curse, then the great restoration. And they knew they were in the time of the great restoration. But they were saying, in effect, this great restoration is spelled with a small g. You know, it doesn't look like the real stuff to us. Where is it? And then Zechariah begins to tell him, uh, wait a bit, folks. <laughs> it's coming. And when it comes, it's going to blow your mind. And so he begins to tell him what it's going to be like. And he says, you know, uh, uh, every pot in Jerusalem will be like a temple vessel to the Lord. Uh, now, I invite you not to think in any detail of the pots of Jerusalem, but uh, they're all going to be made like temple vessels, if you please. How about that? And then he said, on the bridles of the horses, it's going to say, holiness to the Lord. What used to be in the high priest tiara will now be put on horses' bridles. Uh, somebody said that's like bumper stickers, you know. <laughs> holiness to the Lord. Uh, inconceivable blessing. And the weakest inhabitant of Jerusalem is going to be like King David. The least citizen of Jerusalem will be like David, like Israel's legendary king. And in that day, what will the king be like? Remember what Zechariah says. As the angel of the Lord. Come on. See what he's saying? God himself is going to have to come. And what can account of the, for the glory of the latter days? It's described in all the prophets. Uh, you know there's an amazing passage in Isaiah 19 that describes that glory too. Uh, in that passage, uh, uh, God says that... Uh, in that day, there's going to be a pillar in Egypt to the glory of God. And in that day, uh, there are going to be people coming up out of uh, uh, Egypt to worship. And of course, the only way you can come up out of Egypt to, uh, to worship, I mean, here's uh, Egypt down here with the delta of the Nile, and you come around the coast of the Mediterranean, and, and you, you come up here and... Uh, uh, here's Israel right here see so here come the people out of Egypt to worship only where do they go they come right up and go right over and they go over to Mesopotamia to worship huh? 
the Israelites. Here come all the Egyptians to worship. And they go right by. And then, here come all the Assyrians. And they're going to worship. And they come this way. They go right by. Go down to Egypt to worship. Now, wait a minute. I mean, isn't this the place that God has chosen where he's supposed to be worshipped? So, if this is the holy house of God to worship, why are the Egyptians going right on by? And why are the Assyrians going right on by? In that day, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall worship with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth for that the Lord of hosts hath blessed them saying blessed be Egypt all me my people and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel mine inheritance you know, tradition says that Isaiah was sawn asunder. It's not surprising if he talked like that. The enemy nations, Egypt, Assyria. And yet he doesn't say Israel is no longer the people of God. Oh no, they're God's inheritance, they're God's people. But so is Assyria, and so is Egypt. Now friends, here's a great principle evident here. Very, very great and very important principle in all biblical interpretation. When God does more than he promises, he hasn't done less. you believe that? If God does more, he hasn't done less. Think about that a little bit, will you? A lot of people will say all sorts of prophecies haven't been fulfilled. But uh, what if God has more than fulfilled them? What about that? See, that's what all these prophecies are telling us. That the fulfillment of the latter days. You don't know what you're talking about yet. The, the light of the sun being increased by threefold. The, uh, uh, the peace in the animal kingdom. Uh, nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. What's God going to do when he comes? Now see, the trouble with the Lord is that he keeps destroying his own credibility by promising too much. If God would only be reasonable and make possible promises, people would believe. But he makes impossible promises. Remember how he did with Abraham? He kept telling Abraham that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son. And they kept not having one, right? Until it began to get ridiculous. And finally, God repeats it to Abraham again that Sarah's going to bear him a child. You know what it says in the Bible? Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He says, Lord, this is getting funny. At my age and at her age, we're going to have a child? This is a joke. Pardon me while I laugh. And then, uh, you know, Sarah heard the promise from the Lord too when she was standing in the tent door. And uh, she laughed, too. She thought, this is ridiculous. And she laughed. And remember, the angel of the Lord said, you laughed. And remember, Sarah was very embarrassed, you know. Very, it's impolite to laugh in a lot of situations. And especially, it's impolite to laugh at the angel of the Lord, you know. And, and, and she says, uh, uh, I didn't laugh. Who, me? No, 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 no. no. Uh, no, I didn't laugh. And the Lord said, you laughed. <laughs> he wanted it on the record that she laughed. Right? Why? Well, you know why. The, the year came around and Sarah had a son. <laughs> Isaac was born. And uh, you know what the word Isaac means, don't you? It means laughter. And, and Sarah says, God has made me to laugh. She was laughing out of the other side of her mouth now. She says, God has made me to laugh, and everybody who hears it will laugh with me. She said, who would believe that Sarah 
would nurse a little baby. So she's holding little Isaac, and now she's laughing. But she's not laughing in unbelief. She's laughing in the joy of the fulfillment of the promise of God. You see, friends, God promises too much. And remember what Abraham said to God when he got done laughing? Abraham said to God, let Ishmael live before me. God said, uh, Abraham said, Lord, uh, you didn't give me any son, but I made some other arrangements. And now I've got this fine lad, Ishmael, look at him. Lord, be reasonable. Do what's possible. Don't promise the impossible, child. Use the, the possible one, the one that's existing. See, there's all kinds of Ishmaelite theology going around today. <laughs> You know, scale down God to where he can be believed. Um, get rid of the supernatural in Scripture and just uh, uh, keep a message of love, you know? Uh, Jesus didn't really walk on the water. He only walked on the beach, and it looked like he was walking on the water. Read it in the interpreter's Bible. Uh, Ishmaelite theology. See? Uh, believe what's possible. Don't believe what's impossible. And, uh, and you get uh, preachers that are more and more ready to accommodate unbelief. And they, they say, oh, you, you can't believe in miracles, huh? Well, uh, we'll give you these other explanations. You know, Jesus didn't really multiply one boy's lunch to feed 5,000. He just gave an example in sharing. And when he shared, everybody shared. So they all ate. Isn't that nice? And it's a much better story, you know, than this miracle stuff, the Shazam, you know, nobody likes that. <laughs> and so uh, let's get rid of that sort of thing from the Bible and, uh, and tone it down, and then it becomes believable. And, you, you know, the guy says, I, I, I can't go for miracles. And the, and the preacher says, okay, we'll get rid of the miracles. Uh, and, and now will you believe? And the fellow says, well, yeah, some of these particular miracles bother me especially. Virgin birth, I, I can't believe in that. And so uh, he says, well, would you believe that Jesus Christ is uniquely born? Would that go? And he says, well, I suppose everybody's uniquely born. That's all right. So they put that in confession in 1967 in the Presbyterian Church. So, uh, that, you know, that scales it down. Militionalitism, and you get it by. And then the resurrection. How about that? Who can believe in the resurrection? Uh, well, uh, nobody can believe in a physical resurrection, so you don't have to. Uh, let's believe in a, uh, you know, who wants to, an interest in revivified cadavers? You don't want that to So uh, uh, let's not worry about empty tombs. Let's say it was a spiritual resurrection. And uh, can you go for that? And everybody says, well, sure, spiritual resurrection, why not? I mean, that's all in the, you know, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe the New Age theology shows that we all get born again anyway into something else. So uh, that, that's not too bad. And so it goes, right? Right down the line. Until at last, the, the skeptic has come through with all his objections, and the preacher has yielded every point, and uh, then the preacher says, now will you believe? We've got rid of uh, literal resurrections, we've got rid of the virgin birth, we've got rid of literal miracles, we've got rid of the blood atonement, because that's a butcher shop theology and you don't like that. So we've got rid of all of that now. Now will you believe? And the fellow says, uh, I guess I do, uh, but I've always believed that, so what else is new? He said, there's no gospel left. No, it, my dear friends, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God promises the impossible. And my friends, this is the message of the Old Testament. It really is. Isaac will be born. And he is. See? The dry bones will live. And uh, in the vision they do. That Israel will be brought back from captivity. And they are. And, and the temple is built. Yes. And by God keeps saying there's going to be more. There's going to be much, much more. And God always promises more than we can conceive. He doesn't just say, I'll make you a little better. He says, I'll give you a new birth. He doesn't just say this whole world is going to get a little better. He says, I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But God promises a bottles of wine. 
What God promises is the impossible. What God promises is what only God can do. He only can do it, and therefore, he has to come to do it. Nobody else can do it. You know, friends, uh, I, I, I didn't say what I said about liberal theology. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, don't think that I'm not tempted the same way. We all are. We all are. We're all tempted to do that. Everybody. To scale things down a little bit. You know? To make it sound better to people. Uh, you know, who wants to be uh, classed with uh, a TV fundamentalist preacher? in America today. You don't want to be seen as believing all this uh, uh, ridiculous stuff, do you? We're we're all tempted that way. And then we don't realize what the temptation really is. Because what it really means is do we live by man's word or by God's word? Do we believe God? Remember what Jesus always wanted. We always ask for the same. Believe us now. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So, remember that because um, it's a temptation for all of us. And there are graduates of Westminster Seminary who have uh, brought down their flag, you know, and given in and given up and said, uh, it's too much to believe. I can't believe. And it's only by the power of the Spirit of God that we can be kept believing. And don't forget either that as the Lord leads you through your life, He's going to lead you through many bitter experiences. And He's going to lead you through suffering. And this is necessary because God does love you. Because he has to purify your faith in the fire as uh, gold is purified in the fire. That your faith may be strengthened, be strong, and may remain. Remember that. That God has a purpose to keep you believing. Believing the impossible. Believing the promise of God believing the miracle as it is in Jesus Christ. Well, friends, uh, God will come, and he does come, and we have the wonderful message of how it is that God uh, does come. Uh, I mentioned there the passage in Ezekiel 34 and Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, God says that he will come to be the shepherd of of his people. He will carry the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That as he came leading Israel up out of the land of Egypt, so he will come again in a way that uh, will amaze everybody. Remember the Dead Sea community had their uh, place of uh, dwelling uh, on the western shore of the Dead Sea. You know why they located there? Of course, partly just to get out of the land of Israel, out in the desert. But that wasn't the only reason. They wanted to be there on the heights where they could uh, look across well, it's not real high where their camp was, but it's a clear vision. They can look right across the, the lake, uh, the sea, uh, to the place, to the heights of Eden, where God would come marching and go out there, you know, where God and march before, and he'll march again, the king's highway up from Egypt. So they were looking for the coming of the Lord to come marching through the desert, preparing in the desert a highway for our God. God will come again in redemption. But he will come as the shepherd, carrying the sheep, carrying the lambs. And then we're told uh, beautifully uh, that the Lord, who is our shepherd, uh, will be the shepherd of Israel in in Ezekiel 34. God says, uh, the shepherds aren't taking care of my sheep. They're feeding themselves with the meat of the flock. They're clothing themselves with the wool of the flock. But they're not finding the lost sheep. They're not binding up the wounded. They're not healing. They're not gathering. They're not tending. They're not caring for the flock. And so God says, I'll come. I'll come myself. I'll be the shepherd of my flock. I will be the man. And uh, then he says, my servant David will be their prince and savior among them. So God says, I will come and be the shepherd. And he says, the greater David will come. 
will be the shepherd. The Messiah will come and be the shepherd. And then the passage in Isaiah 59, 16. Uh, I do that little wet Roman helmet in there because God says that uh, my, uh, the leaders of Israel are not taking care of the people. They're not protecting them. Now I use not the figure of a shepherd, but the figure of a king, uh, a warrior. And he says, uh, my people aren't being defended. And so God says, I will come. I will defend them. I will put on the helmet of salvation. I will put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, Tremper Longman here at Westminster has done a lot of uh, fruitful study uh, on the theme of the divine warrior in the ancient Near East background, but the, the picture in the Old Testament of God coming as the divine warrior. And God says that he will come. He will be the deliverer and the champion of his people. And then you have that amazing passage in Exodus 17. Uh, remember there, uh, Israel has wandered out into the desert and there is named water. And they begin to mutter and murmur against God because there is named water. And remember the place is called Massah and Meribah. And Meribah is uh, built on the Hebrew root uh, reed. And that root means... Uh, that means uh, a, a law case. It means to institute judicial proceedings. And so Israel, there in the desert, was guilty of reed. See, Meribah is the participial form based on reed. So Israel says uh, in the desert, uh, is God among us or not? Remember, that's how that passage ends in Exodus 17. Is God among us or not? And of course, what they're suggesting is God is not among us. He's broken his covenant. He's unfaithful to his covenant. And therefore, God ought to be judged. But Israel, uh, they, uh, God wasn't available for judgment. <laughs> but Moses was there. He was God's representative. So they said, we'll stone Moses. We're all going to die of thirst in the desert, but before we die, we're going to take care of Moses. And uh, see that his bones are there in the desert before ours are. As stoning wasn't mob violence, it was judicial execution. Going to execute Moses, court martial him, find him guilty as a traitor. He betrayed the people by leading them out there into a desert waste where they were all going to die of thirst, and he ought to be judged for treason. Well, uh, God is uh, a God of law, He's a God of justice, and if the people want a trial, they'll have a trial. And so God tells Moses to take in his hand the rod of judgment, the rod with which he smote the river of Eden. Now, in those days, justice was inflicted with a rod. We're told in Deuteronomy 25 that somebody's guilty of a crime, he lies down before the judge, and he's beaten. See? And uh, remember, the limit is put that not more than 40 uh, strokes could be laid on anybody so that he wouldn't be killed by the beating if it wasn't a, you know, I mean, if it wasn't a capital offense. So here comes Moses with a rod of judgment. And God says, it's a rod because you smote the river of Egypt. So he smote the Nile in judgment and turned to blood. So he takes a rod in his hand as the instrument of judgment. And then he says, pass on before the people and take with you of the elders of Israel. Now the elders are the officials of Israel. They're judges themselves. But here they are called to stand as witnesses in the judgment scene. So they come as the official witnesses, the elders, and Moses passes on ahead, and he goes to the place of the rock uh, where God is. And God says an amazing thing there. It's the only place in the Old Testament that you have a phrase like this. God says, I will stand before you there upon the rock. Now see, usually a man comes and stands before God. God doesn't come and stand before a man. So God's saying, in effect... I will take my place in the prison dock. I will stand as the one accused. And Moses, you strike the rock on which I sing, and the rock with which God's identified. For remember, in the songs of Moses, God's name is the rock. God our rock. His work is perfect. And in the Psalms, which uh, recapitulate Mass of Meribah, uh, God is called the rock. In Psalm 78, Psalm 95, God is called our rock. So the rock is the name of God. God stands on the rock. He's identified with the rock. And Moses doesn't bring down the rod of judgment into the very heart of the Shekinah glory. That would be a bit too much. 
But Moses brings the rod down upon the rocks on which God stands. What an amazing symbol. You know, I think that the symbolism of it has been somewhat lost, even though we have the hymn, Rock of Ages. I think people haven't always realized what that really means. That God is accused. God is accused of covenant breaking. And he appears to stand before Moses as one accused. And Moses lifts the rod, and the rod descends on the rock that symbolizes the very presence of God in the midst of the people. And from that rock, there flows forth water. There was a remarkable play that was uh, staged in West Berlin uh, after the war. Uh, It was a play that described people talking about the days of the Holocaust after World War II. And the people were considering the, the Holocaust. You know, they were all saying, it wasn't my fault. I didn't have anything to do with it. The housewife said, I was just talking about my daily affairs. I didn't even know what was going on. The businessman said, well, I heard something about it, but I was busy in the steel industry and I didn't have opportunity. And even the, the uh, SS uh, trooper <laughs> who had been involved said, well, yes, I was involved, but uh, the real blame was higher up. All I did was obey orders. I didn't uh, develop the final solution that was developed higher up. I just did what they told me to do, and I did that as a loyal soldier. That's all. That is the second uh, scene. And now things get a little closer to home. And uh, they begin to accuse one another. And after a while, the housewife admits, well, she knew more than she let on. (laughs) She knew about those trains. And then after a while, the businessman admits that he had involvement too, in a sense. And then after a while, the SS trooper admits that he was guilty of some real atrocities, you know. But then they all say, yes, we were all guilty. They say, we weren't ultimately guilty. The real point was higher up. Higher up. Higher up. Hitler. But not just Hitler. Higher up. God. God let it. God let the Holocaust happen. God let it happen in his world. So God's guilty. So they said, let's get God on trial. So then the, the next scene, they call in God and put him on trial. They find him guilty for allowing the Holocaust in this world. And then they say, well, now we've got a sense. Hopefully, hopefully sense. And uh, somebody says, uh, let him be a Jew. See what it's like to live in the world as a Jew. Somebody else said, I lost a son or let him lose a son. Somebody else said, don't let him die just by a fire squad. Let him die by intense, agonizing suffering. That's what God wrote. Well, the play was written by a Lutheran pastor. You see the message. Of course, God is But God, for the judges, has nothing more. God had defended Israel in the wilderness. And yet the people called for judgment. And God stood before Moses and received the judgment. And from the rock that was struck by the rod of Moses, there flowed out the water. What life the people of God and purpose. Remember Jesus on the last great day of the feast, stood up the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, If any man thirst, let him come to me, and let him drink that believeth on me. As the scripture has said, from his inmost parts there, there shall flow rivers of living water. And you notice I gave that a little different translation. It doesn't follow any different text, it's just a different translation. Raymond Brown defends it in his commentary on John. If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and let him drink that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, from his inmost part shall flow rivers of living water. See, the water flow not from the inmost parts of the believers, but from the inmost part of Jesus Christ. And John, who reports that in the seventh chapter, tells us in the nineteenth chapter when the spear was thrust into the side of Christ, there flowed out blood and water. 
water that Jesus offered was the water of the Holy Spirit, right? what he offered in the Samaritan by the well. And so we're reminded of John's gospel, not just of the gift of the Spirit, but Jesus breathed on the disciples after the resurrection, when he gave the Spirit by the symbol of his bread. But John is telling us that Jesus also gave the Spirit by the symbol of the water that flowed from the side and across the Calvary which contains the very profound spiritual truth that Jesus not only sends the Holy Spirit from the throne of glory the Pentecost, but he also breathes the Holy Spirit in his resurrection triumph in the upper room. But that even before that, the Spirit flows from the side of Jesus Christ across the Calvary. It is by his sufferings that Jesus gives to us life, by his death that we live, by his agony on the cross, that the spirit of life flows to us. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy ribbon side which flow, be a sin to double kill, cleanse me from its guilt. See, friends, how it's all tied together? And John is especially interested in sin. And especially interesting, it plays on words in double meanings as he communicates to us the riches and mystery of that which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. John 17 gives us the picture of the servant of the Lord, Moses, wielding the rod of God's judgment so that God himself might receive the smiting in our place. By his stripes we are healed, by his death we have life.